Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Music Biz Weekly Podcast. I am one of your two co-hosts, Michael Brandvold, and as always, I'm joined by Jay Gilbert. How are you doing today, Jay? Great, Mike. Thanks. So, um, why don't you take the honors? We've got another special guest joining us today, and uh, let's give him, give him his proper dues. Yeah, well, today's guest, uh, Steve Gordon, I first became aware uh, back in like 2004, I launched a digital label for uh, Universal, and I, I met Steve, and, and uh, I was on a, a show with him, and then uh, the next year in 2005, we had a big off-site meeting at Universal, and I was so impressed with his book, The Future of the Music Business, that I bought like 24 copies of it and gave it to everybody on our sales and marketing team at our off-site meeting. And it's been something that I've recommended and, uh, you know, uh, talked about for many years. The the new version is out and I've gone through it with a, here, let me show you this. I've gone through it with a, uh, a highlighting pen and I highly recommend it. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But uh, Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jay. It's a real uh, pleasure to be talking to you, Mike. Pleasure to meet you as well, Steve. So, um, just before we hit the record button, Steve, you were telling us uh, quite a, an interesting, fun little story here, um, and and I think it's worth discussing because it's 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 one of those current, things where it's, it's, it's current, it's topical, and it's something that people need to be aware of. Especially given the audience of our show, which is a lot of DIY, do-it-yourself, um, people that aren't necessarily on labels, that don't have big managers, um, they're looking for all the inside advice and, and direction they can get. So why don't, why don't you fill us in a little bit on this, this story you were telling us? All right, let me set this up a little bit. Um, I'm actually writing an 11-part series uh, which we're titling The 11 Contracts Every Artist, Songwriter, Producer Should Know. I say we because I'm uh, publishing these things in Digital Music News, little plug for uh, Paul Reznikov, uh, and uh, they also appear in the uh, this, uh, Entertainment Law blog. And what this is, is, and uh, by way of introduction, as you guys know, the recording business is not what it was. Uh, it's declined. Uh, from 14.5 billion when I was at Sony Music in '99 to less than seven billion as of last year, and uh, it looks like it's just going to go further in that direction. Things are stabilizing a little bit because there's more money coming in from streaming and from Pandora and Sirius, in particular, and Spotify. But things are not getting that much better. So indie artists who had dreams of becoming stars or of signing with majors may be indie artists forever. And with that in mind, I want to bring to their attention the basic deals and contracts that if they have some success in the business, they're going to see at one time or another. And I want to show them what a pro-company agreement looks like, and I want to show them what they should be asking for. So in each installment, and the first one I'll be talking about in a minute, which is the production deals. I give the pro company deal and the pro artist deal, and I annotate both so that especially an artist can look at the pro company annotations that I write, and they can see how they can make the deal better for them. So if they can't afford a lawyer, at least they get some guidance. And by the way, all these installments or uh, articles are free, and all of the contracts are uh, completely downloadable. So. 
It's really to help people like that. So the first the first agreement that I want to talk about, which is really egregious, and I've seen this twice in the last few months, and uh, every time I see it, it, it's upsetting. It's a production deal, but it's a production company masquerading as a record company. So instead of a production deal, they call it a production deal, it's really a full-blown recording agreement. Now, as you know, when you get into a deal with a major label, they're going to ask for multiple albums. They'll have options for up to six or plus, six plus albums, so they can keep you tied up forever. But they give you a big upfront advance, and that is money towards the recording, so you can hire some good producers, and it's also money in your pocket. So you can say anything you want about the big, bad, evil record companies, but in reality, they're actually doing a service for the artist by giving them some money up front. And then, if it hits, if it's radio friendly, if they think it's going to be successful, they will pour money into you, the artist, and your project. Because if they think they're going to get a big return, they're going to spend a lot of money on you. Okay, for touring and for uh, going to every radio station in the country and uh, going on tour without being paid, they'll pay for you. So the big bad record companies, yeah, they play games. You know, you won't get any money until you recoup, and they're going to slice your, you know, control composition rate for songs you write down to three quarters. Yeah, there's a lot of bad stuff in big record company agreements, but they actually can be very helpful as well. But when you have this production company on the other hand, XYZ production company out of Miami or Newark, and it's basically two guys. One guy's been in the music business, and the other guy comes from a hedge fund. They've got a studio, they bring in artists, and they give them the same exact horrible agreement the record company gives the artist. The same exact six albums, the same exact we'll take a piece of your publishing, or we'll cut your publishing down by three quarters. And the same exact 360 provisions. Now, the big record companies are doing these 360 deals, which you guys know is taking a piece of every income stream. So if an artist makes money from merch, selling t-shirts or what have you, if an artist makes money doing touring or personal appearances, or if the artist writes a song and makes money from the song, all of these are income streams that the big record companies always never touched. Now they're touching them. Because they're in trouble, they're not selling records, they're taking a piece of every income stream. But at least they're getting the advance. At least they're doing something to help the artist's career. And if you're a lawyer for the artist with a big record company, you can negotiate advances for each income stream. But if you get in bed with these little production companies masquerading as major labels, they're not going to give you anything. They're going no to advance. take that your income. And you know what the contract could really be? is just the device for extortion later. So that if you ever really do make it, or you ever do get a real offer, knock, knock, here's the little production company, XYZ from Newark or Miami. Hi, Mr. Sony, hi, Mr. Warner, hi, Mr. Universal. Guess what? We have this contract, Sardis is signed exclusively to us. How are you going to take care of us? And uh, often, too often, I, I, I've seen this happen, and it, it's a shame. And I wrote about it in the uh, first installment of uh, the series. So, right. so basically, what happens, what it sounds like is these production contracts, production companies, first right. of all, they don't have the deep pockets. They don't have the bankroll that a record label has. And secondly, they have you so tied up that if you do get an offer to go somewhere else, 
somebody's going to have to buy you out of that production contract or you're not leaving. That's exactly right. And I prevented an artist from signing one of these deals. And the next thing I did, uh, there was some interest in her from uh, junior executives at labels. I put her with a, a management company. And the next thing you know, she got offers from all of the major record labels. Wow. And now she's uh, just signed to Sony, and we're expecting her to do very, very well. Hey, Steve. Yeah. I'm sorry. What, what kind of artists are they targeting? Are they targeting, you know, YouTube sensations? Are they going after, you know, people they, they see that are bubbling up? What, what type of artists are they targeting? Well, in this case, of the artist that just signed to Sony who didn't sign that horrible deal, and by the way, it was 40% of her income from any source in the entertainment business for life. Okay. Wow. <laughs> right. Wow. Um, she was on Vine. She became very successful by doing uh, covers of Taylor Swift and, Swift and Justin Bieber. And she got to a couple hundred thousand. And then she wrote an original song, which she put in installments, six-second installments on Vine. And there was such a craze after that, because the song was really a, a brilliant, brilliant song, that, that there was this great uh, uh, request by many people uh, to put the thing, the whole song, on YouTube. And then when it went on YouTube, it became a sensation. Uh, then she was invited down by these two guys in New York, and she re-recorded the song. They put it up on iTunes, and the song sold very well. But they got into it because they saw 300,000 buying followers. Got it. The major labels and management company was able to get the major labels at the very highest level at the major labels. We're talking about the presidents of the record companies. They were interested in it because not only did she have now about 400,000 buying followers at the time they met her, but her sales of her iTunes of that one single was the second best-selling single for four months in a row in iTunes singer-songwriter. So the presidents of the record label saw the vine, they saw the sales, and everybody made an offer. Yeah. Steve, let me, let me ask you, if, if an artist gets into one of these production deals, in your experience, how easy is it to extract them from that deal? Are these contracts pretty tight? Yeah. Well, you know, I told you I got a call, I think, I told you from Abu Dhabi, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, yesterday, uh, last night, Abu Dhabi. And uh, the uh, caller was manager of an artist who won the X Factor uh, for, I think, last year's uh, Abu Dhabi television X Factor. Did you know they have X Factor in Abu Dhabi? <laughs> they do now. They do now, yeah. <laughs> now you know. So he signed this terrible deal with a major label. It's a management deal and it's a record contract and he was told he couldn't get to the next level on the show unless he signed this terrible deal and I'm not going to tell you who the terrible bad it's the foreign affiliate of a major uh, American record company and they're hiring me to extract him now from that deal now there are various devices in his case uh, the record company said you know what we screwed up uh, we said we were going to give you 70% we're giving you 30%. We're revising the contract, okay? So we want you to sign this because we, we, we did a typo. That's so less, he, right? What's that? I said that's less, right? <laughs> it's, a, it's a big typo, right? They were, they were, they were going to take 30% and they wanted 70%. So 
they set them the contract with the new numbers, and the manager goes through it, they're willing to think that maybe uh, the label screwed up, maybe it was a typo, they're willing to consider this, and then they read through the new agreement, and there's all these other provisions which are very onerous and pro-label that the label never told them would be included in the revision. They said, we're just changing these numbers to sign it. And they wanted the artist not to read the other changes that, that they made. Now, I work for a big label, and Jay, you work for a big label. We would never do this in the United States, but apparently in Abu Dhabi, <laughs> they do. And I think it's fraud. And in the termination letter that I'm going to create, I'm going to tell them you've committed fraud and the contract is terminated based on that, as well as other things I'll find if yeah. I review these. Is that a worldwide deal, Steve? I haven't seen the agreement yet, but my impression from the management is that it is. How can artists uh, and even you know management and other people that are helping, how can they protect themselves against these kinds of tactics? Well, you know... I'm prejudiced saying uh, I could get a lawyer, that, that would be the easy thing to do. And uh, we can talk about how to find a lawyer, but the problem is often the artist doesn't have the wherewithal to afford a lawyer. So let's talk about that. There is volunteer lawyers for the arts, which many artists don't know about. Um, this is not really in their world. Uh, VLA is a major city, it's New York, San Francisco, LA. It's really geared for not-for-profits, but if the artist isn't making any money, they will take the artist in. Because they're and clearly not profiting. <laughs> well, no profit is not not-for-profit, but often right, right. there's no profit. You're right. So that is a resource, and I think there's a VLA in Boston. So suppose, you know, you just uh, graduated Berkeley or you dropped out of Berkeley to become the next John Mayer. You have no money and no lawyer. You can go to the Boston Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts. They will take you in, they will give you advice, and they will shield you from the sharks. All right, you know, the sharks are at every level of the music business, uh, as you guys know. But it, they're, they're the most destructive at the level where the artist has no money, where the artist is about to sign with major label and has a lawyer, then it's two sharks <laughs> against each other. The artist has his own or her own shark. So the, the situation is at its worst when you can't afford a lawyer. So that's what comes to mind, volunteer lawyers for the arts. Now, if you can't afford a lawyer and you're looking around for one, everybody knows it goes by word of mouth. Um, I've been fortunate because I write a lot and I do things like this a lot and the word gets out. And, you know, you can read my bio and you can see my experience. and. You know, I think any reputable lawyer these days will have something online that an artist can check out. So it's a little easier, I think, to uh, shop for a lawyer now than okay. it's been in the past. Okay. Well, can you take a moment and tell us a little bit about these series of articles that you're, you're going to be writing? What are, what are they covering? Right. Um, well, we talked about the production deal. And uh, in that one, uh, I gave the intro along the lines of our discussion. But I also gave a pro-production company agreement, which was really a record label deal masquerading as a production company agreement, and a pro-artist deal. And in the pro-artist deal, I say how it should be. The production company, those two guys I was talking about, you know, XYZ Company in Newark or Miami, they should be 
proposing an 18-month deal or a 12-month deal where they're going to spend their own money making a new record that they will shop to uh, record companies. And within that period of time, whether it's 12 months or 18 months, the artist should have the right to approve any deal that they make. They can't just make any deal. The artist has to approve it. Okay, and then they get a split or share of the advance and royalties with the major label or whatever other company they find to help the artist. But the artist have the right to approve it, should be limited in time, and if they don't find uh, the right deal for the artist, the artist should be able to walk away without any further commitment to that company. That's a true production company deal, and I actually put that deal in the article. You know, the technology is interesting and good. Um, what we can do is do a five-page intro, and then we can put a 30-page agreement in um, a squid box, and you can scroll down and see the entire agreement or print it out. So we can do 80-page article uh, in five pages. Uh, it's kind of cool. And you can find these articles. I think you guys are going to link to the five I've already published, right? Good. We'll provide links. So you yep. can uh, go to Mike's website and find these articles, and they'll link to Digital Music News. Uh, aside from production deals... Steve, Steve let, me, let me ask one, one question about that production deal. So yeah. you yeah. said if no deal is obtained, you should be able to walk away from it. What happens to the recorded material? Who retains ownership of the material that was recorded at the end of that production deal? Okay, that's a good question. I'm going to answer that, but I want to go back one step. You say, said if no deal is obtained. It's not just obtaining. It's the artist approving. The artist has to approve right. that deal. Because if it's a terrible deal, the artist does not want to be bound. So after the artist turns out, down that terrible deal and the parties go their separate ways, generally the production company keeps the rights and the masters because they created them, they paid for them. However, it's very important in negotiating that deal that the artist retains 100%, 100% of the publishing. So, as you guys know, in any uh, recorded work, there are two different copyrights. The copyright in the recording and the copyright in the song. So, uh, say, I record a, uh, I'm going to try to give you a real example. The example I usually use is Ruby My Dear by Thelonious Monk. Thelonious, that's my, you know, cup of tea, sorry. So Thelonious Monk, the great jazz artist, enters this deal with Columbia Records, it was like 30 years ago. And Columbia Records owns all of the rights in the sound recordings. The production company would all own all the rights in the recordings. But what Columbia Records didn't get, and what that production company should not get, is rights in your song. So Ruby, my dear, it still belongs now to the estate of Thelonious Monk. It's administered by a publishing company and it still makes money. You know, I got a call today from a major brand. They want to use Baby It's Cold Outside, okay? It's going to be a lot of money, okay? Six figures yeah. uh, for, for an ad campaign. So a song, and by the way, they're re-recording that song. So they're not going to pay a record company. They're only going to pay the publishing. So it's very important for that artist-songwriter to retain the publishing so that after the production company goes in its own direction, the artist goes in his or her own direction, the artist takes the song with him or her. So, Steve, so they, they separate. The, the recordings are, are owned by 
the production company. Right. Um, what? Let's fast forward to a what if. A year from now, that artist signs a, a record deal, releases a, pro, a new product, it takes off. Can that production company release those original recordings without the artist's permission? Yes. Uh, under a standard production contract, they would pay a royalty. Uh, and uh, God bless. You know, the thing is, uh, when Nirvana hit, um, there was a company that put out their early records, which not a, a lot of people bought, because a major label puts a lot of money into promoting a record. Uh, and they have the relationships at radio. Commercial radio is still the big gatekeeper in terms That's right. of popularity. So unless it's on you know, commercial radio, you're probably not going to hear it. Okay, so the major labels have those relationships. They pay tens of millions of dollars in advertising to the major radio networks, and of course the radio networks are going to play their music. I don't know, something like 38 out of 40 all come from major labels out of top 40 records they play in any one day. So if you're uh, that little production company and you're trying to push the records that the artist did initially with you, you may have some sets, you may not. If it is a good contract that the artist uh, signed, whatever it is, you'll get a cut of what that production company makes. But yes, that production company would be able to sell those, those records. So, so actually, that's how a lot of times when you hear the, oh, we, we found some superstars unreleased, undiscovered album, it's probably some production company somewhere that had a demo tape, uh, an early recording, that um, is pressing it up and releasing it, hoping, yeah, and to, hoping to ride on the coattails. Yeah, and as long as they pay the, the mechanicals on that, right, they, uh, they're okay. Well, not only the mechanicals, but they're, uh, the record royalty. But um, I would say that um, a lot of times the early records aren't very good, and that's why the production company couldn't make a deal. Uh, right. Because they couldn't right. do a job of producing, and I would say a lot of times when they put out, you know, stuff you've never heard of before. Sony just did this with Michael Jackson. It's stuff that didn't get into the album that Sony recorded with Michael. So he might have done thirty songs for every album that had twelve songs, and only the twelve songs that everybody liked went into the album. There were eighteen other songs that never were released. And I would say most of the stuff that has never been heard, the unreleased stuff. Is, has been recorded by uh, the major labels. Um, but, you know, you're right. People do write on coattails. But I've never heard of a case where they've made more money than the record company. Is, is, it, it. Is, it, um, is it possible that the artist could actually go back to the production company at, after separation and say, we want to buy that recording back from you? Does that happen frequently? Well, what does happen that I know about is that once the artists become superstars, they'll buy back their records from the record company. It happened with Rolling Stones when I was at Sony. Uh, they were uh, CBS uh, recording artists for a period of years, uh, and they bought back uh, the rights in their recordings. Um, I don't remember the specific provisions. It may have been there was a provision in the contract, the original contract, that said that if they recouped, they'd be able to pay a certain amount to get their money, uh, their masters, masters back. Yeah. Or it may have been that if they recouped their costs, uh, recording costs and the other costs uh, that CBS uh, put out, that they'd be able to distribute themselves and pay what you call an override royalty back to CBS. So all these arrangements are possible. 
But you know what's interesting is this: that when you are a new artist and you sign to a major label, the terms may be pretty crappy. But if you become successful, and this is the way the game is played, has been played with major record companies from a time immemorial, you can renegotiate your deal. Not that the original contract says, oh, you can renegotiate your deal anytime. You can't, according to the contract. But the manager can always say, look, you know, Mike, Murray, you know, Pete, we're not going back into the studio. You got to, you know, you got to make this right. You know, he entered this into this agreement when he was nothing. Now he's everything to this record company. So you, you got to sit down with us and, and, and talk seriously. Because so you have not, more leverage when you're successful. And over the years, Michael Jackson probably went through 20 iterations of his contract. And at the end of the day, it was a 50-50 share between uh, Sony Music and Michael. So, you know, um, these things get renegotiated. And yes, if an artist is really big and uh, successful, uh, he can buy back his records. If it's not the original agreement, they can make a deal. Got it. Got it. Okay, well, do you want to talk a little bit more about what, what other articles are coming out through yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Digital Music News? Well, I'd like to talk uh, very briefly about uh, management agreements and about sync licenses, because those are two things that uh, independent artists will actually hopefully see. Uh, Management agreement is a very simple document. Basically, you're getting somebody to work for you for free on an hourly basis for free, I should say. The commission is usually 15 to 20 percent. If you make no money as an artist, the manager makes no money. And that's why it's really hard to find a manager. Um, finding the right manager is a complete subject in itself, but I want to stick to the contract for now which is 15 to 20 percent and it could be a year-long deal with options on the part of the manager to extend or it could be a three-year deal or it could be a five-year deal the shorter the deal is for the artist singer or producer or songwriter because all these people can have managers uh, the better for the artist or the creator creative because if you don't like your manager if the managers not doing anything for you you can leave if the manager has a five-year deal is doing nothing for you then you have to, you know, get out of the contract, and you may or may not be successful. And if you're not successful, and you want another manager, the other manager is going to say, "Well, you already have that manager. You're going to have to pay me another twenty percent." It's a problem. Uh, and then you have, but uh, really, uh, uh, managers who are not honest, who just sign you so they have the contract, and then they can extort money from the next person. That happens, not as often as with the production company case that uh, we talked about, but that happens. The biggest problem in terms of management agreements, again, is finding somebody who's passionate about your career, who sees your vision, who wants to work with you, and has some contacts in the business. And that manager will offer you a fair deal, say 18 months, where if he's successful at getting you some money, he's successful in getting you on a national tour, he's successful at getting you a deal with the record company, then he has an option for another 18 months. So it's the commission is 15 to 20, the term is the most important thing, and then you should have the right to approve uh, any deals, and uh, then you should have the right to uh, hire a business manager to collect the money. Uh, a manager who's fair and honest and above board does not want to collect the money. That's a whole job in itself because then he has to account to you, uh, he has to give you statements. Let a business manager handle that. Now, if neither the artist or the manager can afford a business manager, because the business manager is 
if the business manager won't work for you unless you're already making money, then you have a provision in the contract that says when, you, when I start to make money, I have the right to get a business manager to collect the money. Until then, I collect the money, and that's a fair management deal. But again, the reality is getting a manager in the first place, and uh, the reality is that if you're uh, hip-hop, R&B, pop, I don't care what you are, you already have to have something to bring to the table. You have to have at least so many Instagram followers, so many uh, 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 YouTube uh, views. you got to show something. Um, unless somebody really falls in love with you as, as, uh, what's his name? Fell in love with Justin Bieber. Who am I thinking of? Yeah, uh, yeah, Scooter Braun. Scooter, Scooter fell in love. Second place in a in a what a, a, a talent competition in what Ottawa. He saw this footage on YouTube and he said, "That's the kid." Well, that could happen, but you still have to be on YouTube. So, uh, are are you are you saying that in a management contract, it would be appropriate for the artist to insert a clause that says? I've got some requirements that you have to get me a record deal, you have to get me on a tour, you have to you have to secure something. Those can be inserted as clauses. Yeah, so instead of a five-year deal, so what I did in the installment, the uh, article, I gave a pro-management agreement, five years, then a pro-artist agreement, 18 months plus you have to show me something. You have to make me successful in some way. I think in the uh, example I gave, it was money. You have to make at least $100,000 for me within 18 months or I'm out. And during the next term, it could be even more money, like 250 So you could do it that way. Um, or you can say, if you get me a record deal, that I approve. Now, I negotiated um, an artist deal with a big-time record company that wanted uh, a lot, two album cycles, which is generally 18 months each. So they wanted three or four years, because an album cycle is making an album and then marketing it and touring, and the deal was we have basically three and a half years to manage you, okay? And I got it down to nine months, you get us a deal that we approve or we're out. And the big management company agreed to my proposal because the artist was really hot. and. Uh, the artist was incredibly successful on social media and had already sold a lot of albums on her own. So everything is negotiable, but it depends on you know the strength and the bargaining power of each each side. Um, so a lot of uh, artists start out with their mom managing them. Um, are you are you advising that you should think about these contracts even when you have a family member as your manager? Well, you know, <laughs> I did this uh, interview with a very famous lawyer, and we were talking about clients, and um, the client from hell is usually the parent or the boyfriend. Once a parent gets involved, anything and everything could go wrong. Um, if a parent wants to be involved when the parent has no experience in the music business, it's probably because the parent is back. So I know a kid who went into Universal and they really wanted to sign him. Doug Morris really loved this kid. He thought he could be the next Chris Brown. And the father wanted more money and blew the deal, walked out, deal never got signed because the father wanted more money. Now if you got a parent like that, you mess everything up. Now another case I had a few months ago, 
I had a parent who was very concerned, wanted the best for his daughter, and hired me as the lawyer because he knew he didn't know. So there are good parents and then there are bad parents. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I, I, I think it does. I mean, uh, you know, it's... Do you have? Do you have? Here's what it comes. Do you have the balls to ask your mom to sign a contract to manage you? <laughs> so, so you're protected. I mean, that that's. I I joke with artists. I go, well, you know, if you're going to have your mom manage you, are you prepared at some point in the future to fire them? Well, that's right. But here's the deal: if the parent doesn't retain the services of a competent attorney, the parent is a bad parent, bad a bad manager. Right. Because they don't know anything about the music business. So if they want to hold the artist's hand during, you know, look, I have an artist that I'm dealing with who's like 12 years old. She's on a very successful reality show. Her mother right now is her manager, and that's fine. I mean, she's 12 years old, and she's not that successful yet. But if she gets picked up by, uh, say, Disney, where we're shopping her now, then the mother would be a bad mother if she did not hire a competent entertainment lawyer. Uh, you may not need a manager if Disney is making you uh, a great deal, but you don't want to have your mother uh, 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 negotiate your deal. So if the mother is, is, is loves the, the child, the mother will hire a competent entertainment lawyer. It's, it, 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 it sounds like to me part, uh, a, a, a central piece to everything you're talking about here is you need to have a good relationship with a good lawyer. Because that lawyer is going to be dealing with production contracts, record labels, managers. A, a, a good lawyer can probably, inter correct me if I'm wrong, will introduce you to a good manager when the time comes. Could introduce you to the right record label when the time comes. Yeah, I, I'm proud to say that I did exactly that with the girl that I was talking to before who just signed to Columbia Records. I introduced her to her manager. So yeah, uh, a competent lawyer in the music business uh, knows how to read a contract, but he also knows people uh, and relationships, like any other business, are key. Sure. But, um, you know, I think the music business is like any other business. There are sharks, like I said, at every level. There are good people at every level. But, um, you know, what makes the music business a little different than, say, oil or cars is you're dealing with human beings, you know. You're dealing with people's visions of themselves for the future. You're dealing with hopes and expectations of teenagers who have stars in their eyes. So in the case where the wrong thing happens, it's so much more tragic than when a factory goes down because of a power outage. Uh, so when you're dealing with human beings like we do in the entertainment business, uh, there's just uh, more uh, emotions involved. Uh, and everything becomes, the stakes are higher. Yeah. How does that work, Steve, as far as paying a lawyer for services? It's clearly different than management. Um, would you always work by the hour or for the right artist? Would it be you know, points on a release or you know, uh, something more like a management fee? How does that typically work? Uh, well, it works in uh, any number of ways, but the basic two ways is and this is the so-called California model, it's 5%. So a manager takes 15 to 20, the lawyer gets 5% of everything. So that has its pros and cons. Suppose you're negotiating with a big record label, the lawyer's going to get 5%, but the lawyer is earning that because they're negotiating the deal. 
And by the way, those deals are like 80 to 100 pages, and there are a thousand things that can be negotiated. And a good entertainment lawyer, music lawyer, knows the things that can be negotiated. He knows what can't be negotiated. Let, let me ask one real quick question. These percentages you're talking about, is that on gross or net? Well, it's uh, gross after costs, uh, and in the standard 5% deal, it's gross after production costs, which are, if the artist gets a reporting fund of half a million, but 250 goes to the album, the lawyer uh, is uh, paid 5% of 250, not 5% of 500. Now, the, the con for the artist in this arrangement is that, well, actually, the benefit, let me back up, for the artist, and this, the big benefit is that there may be other agreements where the artist isn't being paid at all, um, that the lawyer would work on basically for free, because if the artist doesn't make any money, the lawyer is working for nothing. Um, or what about that production company that comes out of the woodwork and bangs on the door of, say, the Sony Music that the artist is now signed to? The artist's lawyer has to deal with those idiots, and that's all for no money coming in the door. So in that case, the artist is like getting lawyers to work for them for free. So when the artist, on the other hand, goes out on tour and starts making real money on the road, the legal work may not be that much. In fact, paralegals may be doing most of it, and yet the artist is going to be paying 5% to the lawyer. So the 5% model has its pros and ups and downs, pros and cons, ups and downs for each party. The other classic model is the uh, per hour model and um, that uh, works for me in most cases because in a lot of cases I'm just doing one-off agreements uh, and then there's very little money involved at least at the beginning so I'll, I'll charge an hourly and you can expect uh, to pay an hourly rate of uh, $300 to $600 an hour now, if you get a, a lawyer to do a uh, royalty slash investment slash equity deal for $1,000, I can mostly, more or less guarantee you that you're getting somebody who doesn't know what they're doing. Because when you have a complex agreement, it has to be treated respectfully, and it has to be done right, and things do take time. So that's the unfortunate part of a lot of what I do is people can't afford me who really need me. and. That's when I refer them back to volunteer lawyers for the arts. Steve, you know we we could we've we've been close to an hour here, and we could keep going and, and easily. You know what I want to do is two things. One, I want to invite you back because I love this talk about contracts, and I think this is really important information. So, so you've got an open invite to come back and discuss some more of those contracts and and links that you're going to be putting up online. But now I want to give you an opportunity to actually talk about your book so we make sure that all the listeners understand your book. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity, Mike. This is the book. It's called The Future of the Music Business. It's now in its fourth edition. It got published uh, just two weeks ago. We had a fun book party here in New York, which I invited everybody through social media to come to, and we had a great time. Uh, but. The not-so-great time is writing this because I spent a million hours on it. Uh, the first three editions, I did spend a lot of time, especially the first edition. But this edition, because the business changed so much in the last four years, I really put my heart and soul into this. And I spent the time, wrote every word, and I think that it could be a valuable resource for people in the business. And what it is, is what I call it, what it's always been, is a roadmap for success for people who are artists, but also people who are entrepreneurs. So if you're a digital startup, or you're 
somebody who's got a bright idea about the next crowdfunding opportunity or platform nobody's thought about, or if you're um, a music executive. I've given a comprehensive overview of how copyright works in the music business and how the law applies to the digital distribution of music, to streaming, to downloading, and to webcasting. And I've also done 100 pages on something that I do for a living a lot, which is to clear music, which means if you're a producer of any project, whether it's a, a musical show, a, theat a theatrical piece, or if it's a TV program, a documentary, or a movie, or a music app, you can read this book, 100 pages on how to clear the music, and I get focused on how much you can expect to pay and the terms that will apply to your license of music. And I'm talking about, for instance, I got a call from a big brand today that want me to clear Baby It's Cold Outside for a national TV campaign. And in this book, I can tell you what you could expect to pay for that and how much. Uh, then I go into the hot issues of today by talking about net neutrality, the, the battles against piracy that continue, and then part four is the how-to. How to use technologies to succeed, how to use YouTube, how to use any kind of a, a crowdfunding a, a, a platform, uh, how to use a music business education to get ahead, or how to use a music school to become a musician, or why that may not be such a good idea to shell out $50,000 a year to, to Juilliard. I interviewed Jonathan uh, uh, Baptiste, who's now the, the music guy for uh, Colbert. Uh, he's in the book talking about uh, whether Juilliard helped him or not. So I've got. Well, you just touched on something, Steve. One of my favorite parts of this book, I, can, I go through every one with a yellow highlighter, and, and I find them very educational, and they, they're great books. But one of the things that kind of sets this apart from other books that are, you know, maybe try to cover some of these topics is that you will take some of these key players, that you, one you just mentioned, and you'll interview them and ask the questions that, you know, maybe Mike or I would ask if we had. And there's so many of those interviews in here as well. And uh, I find that to be one of, the, one of the best parts of the books. Yeah, I love the interview with David Massey, who's president of Island Records, because uh, I found out that he was actually studying law. It's either Oxford or Cambridge. Uh, and he decided to go into the music business uh, basically because of his mom, who managed the great uh, English uh, recording artist Lulu. You remember Lulu to serve with love in the city? Sure. So he was inspired by his mother to not pursue his law career and become a manager, and now he's president of Island Records. So that was fascinating. I want to say one last word about this book, which is it's not just this book, it's also a website. The future, future of the music business.com, www.futureofmusicbusiness.com, where I update each chapter in the book. Because how can you title a book, Future of Music Business, when everything is changing on a weekly basis? So, what I've done is to create a WordPress website that I update practically every week. So, I have stuff that didn't exist when I submitted the manuscript back in January, like the US Copyright Report on Music Licensing, like Title, which Jay-Z hadn't bought uh, until after the book was published, uh, like uh, Apple Music. And I also publish in color the graphs and charts that my poor publisher didn't have enough money to publish in color. Thank you. <laughs> so you can see them up close and personal and get yeah. a lot more out of it that way. So 
Awesome. And, and, and the website, I assume, is the best way for people to get in touch with you if they wanted to message you? Yeah, if they go to Future of the Music Business, let me pronounce that clearly, .com, <laughs> uh, there'll be uh, a link to uh, my uh, professional website with all my information, uh, so it'll be easy for them to find me if they go to futureofthemusicbusiness.com. And, and the book is available on, on all the normal retail outlets, Amazon, etc.? Well, definitely Amazon. Um, I, last time I was in a bookstore was actually two weeks ago, but before that, I had you know bookstores are like almost non-existent these days. So you know, I recommend Amazon because it's cheapest there. But um, you know, if you want to actually see it and get lucky, you'll see it in the bookstore as well. Is, are there um, ebook versions? Can you get it for Kindle? You know, that's a great question. I went to Amazon to look for the ebook version. I, I don't think it's available yet. But um, if you buy uh, the book, I think it's 21 bucks on Amazon, and you look at the website, uh, you'll get uh, the advantage of, of both uh, the, you know, the hard copy and the electronic version. Um, so that's how I recommend going about it. And I should say, I should add one thing, that lawyers who buy the book uh, there is a, um, a web page in the table of contents that tells you go to this page for a web page link. You go there, you put the link in, and you'll get two videos uh, which have to do with the fundamentals of the music business and with the blurred lines Marvin Gaye, Robin Thicke lawsuit. And you'll be able to get two free CLE credits that's continuing legal education credits. So. Um, you won't, you'll get those credits for free, and uh, you may learn something from watching the videos. Great. Excellent. Steve, this was uh, Super enlightening. Fascinating. I love this. I love this talk. I love just getting right down to the, the, the basics, the do's, the don'ts. I think it's stuff that a lot of artists who are first starting out, just they're, they're, they're craving this type of information. You know, the only thing you regret is that I am not as pithy as Donald Passman. <laughs> if you get him for an interview, he's going to say genius things in 10 seconds that it takes me 30 seconds to say. So oh. I'm still working on, on, on getting to his level. Well, we're honored to have you, Steve, and, and I, I think this is an amazing book. I can't recommend it enough, and uh, we really appreciate you coming on and talking about it, and we'd love to have you back. Thanks, Jay. Thanks, Thanks Steve. Thank you. Take care. Hey, you know, as, 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 I, as I told Steve, I love that. I love this type of discussion. I think um, talking contracts is just so interesting. Um, and, and what's great is this is the type of stuff where you might pay a few hundred dollars to have a conversation like this with a lawyer to get his advice. Yeah. You know, he was Steve was throwing out percentages and, and sure. you know, amounts like that, which... You know, those are the big things. How much should I pay a lawyer? Uh, a, a lawyer? How much should I pay a manager? Well, here you go, 15 to 20%, 5% right. to a lawyer or by the hour. Yeah. It's like that's really basic info, but it's so hard to come by. Nobody wants, yeah. to, nobody wants to give up that share little it. nugget no. of here's what and you I need think, to pay. I think that's what makes the book so valuable, you know, and I, I've really enjoyed these books over the years. I think the first one I bought was like 2004 or 2005. So, you know, it's been about 10 years of these books, and this is his fourth. But he goes into those. This is what the percentages are. This is what a typical contract looks like. And you notice that when we, he was talking about his articles, he's going to write a pro and a con. The good so and the if, bad of it. Yeah. So if you're the label, this is what you're shooting for. If you're the artist, this is what you're shooting for. And I think, you know, forewarned is forearmed. 
and to have this kind of information. Um, this isn't the kind of book that's just full of facts and figures. It's hard to read. It's, it's very easy to read. And after some of the chapters, there's these interviews that he has with people from these different companies and different lawyers and music industry people. So I highly recommend it, but I would love to have Steve on the show again and again because we could easily talk for many more hours. There's so many different areas that we just touched on or we didn't get to cover at all. But uh, I, I thought that was a very fascinating yeah, uh, yeah. chat. Yeah, there, there's, there's so many more contracts we could get into. We can get into performance contracts and merchandising contracts. Sync and licensing. Sync licensing and 360 deals and sure. you, you name it. There's there's so much interesting stuff there that uh, I, I know a lot of our listeners would just be eating it up so yeah you know we'll 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 get steve back on next week probably not but yeah keep your, eye, keep your eye out he'll be back in the future absolutely um all right all right i don't know if there's anything is there anything happening in the you know music news related in this last week that's popped up that was worthy of discussion i don't wow well, there's there's some so. things that are kind of coming. You know, it's going to be interesting. You know, to see how Apple Music, um, you know, how many customers they can retain after the three you know kind of trial trial. Yeah, and you know, Spotify is doing some really good growth. You know, they're acquiring customers at a, a an amazing rate right now. I would love to talk a little bit more in the coming weeks about YouTube and what's going on over there. I mean. YouTube is like the streaming music company, and people don't think of it like that. They think of it as just maybe a place to go get videos. But as you and I know, a lot of people stream their music there and create playlists there. And also, you know, I don't want to leave out the places like, you know, Pandora and, and places like that that are, they've got a ton of listeners and they're very powerful. And, uh, and you know, it's also going to be interesting to see how some of this, uh, you know, Playola. Uh, moves forward and see if, uh, you know, is that, you know, we talked about it being, you know, maybe it's legal, but is it ethical? And as now it's become part of the conversation, uh, it's going to be interesting to see how that evolves. I, I so think it's going to be interesting, interesting to see thing. who will make the first push to make it illegal. Yeah. 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 I mean, and not, not just illegal in in agreeing to a terms of service, but illegal as in penalties jail times fines if you you're caught doing it yeah let me ask you really quickly you, you saw that the prince album you know went up with a, a title exclusive um what do you think of that i mean does it matter no it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't matter to me at all i mean honestly first of all i think when it comes to prince it doesn't matter it's prince everybody rolls their eyes and going what what stupid thing did he say? What crazy thing is he doing? I mean, it, he, you know, he's the guy who has sued fans for having fan website, and you know, and he's taken videos, all videos down off of you. I mean, you're just, it's Prince. He can do whatever he wants, and God bless him for being at that level. But <coughs> releasing your CD exclusively through Tidal? Yeah. Really? Is that enough to get title on Who the map? I don't if I'm on so. title, I don't care about CDs. Yeah. If I'm listening on title, I'm a digital user. Yeah. I'm not going to buy the CD. And and listen, let's not let's ignore the diehards because the diehards will buy anything. Of course, we're, wherever so, it is. So now you're talking about how do you sell more CDs to the casual person? 
it's not done on title. No, you make it easy and you make it ubiquitous. I don't get it. I I, I think the whole title thing was a, a major screw up. I think they 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 ruined something that was good there. I thought it was a great service. I was a subscriber, and then when that whole PR thing happened, it was just like you guys. Oh, with the superstars on stage. Superstars on stage, and then you raised the price on the subscriptions a couple weeks later. Uh, it was just like you you blew it. You, yeah. You could have turned this into something good, and you blew it. You and know? does anybody care about quality? And I mean, I don't mean to be flip about it. I mean, honestly. No. You know, does anybody, like I was on a panel uh, at CES one year, you know, with some folks talking about quality, and I was definitely the minority. You know, I love services like Music Giant and things like that. And, you know, Tidal is supposedly, you know, a better bit rate than some of their competitors. But I wonder if, you know, people really care about uh, that. Uh, you know, my Neil answer has always opponent. been no. I mean, and first of all, I will say this. Listen, I could hear the difference between Tidal and Spotify. And even at Spotify's um, high-end rate, you can, you can do hi-fi on, on Spotify. You have to go into your settings, advanced settings, and turn it on. Um, I could hear the difference. It definitely sounded sharper and crystal clear and, you know, more defined. It was, it was noticeable. Yeah. But is that so important that you'll be willing to pay twice as much or more? Or, le or leave the service that you're in now? To, to get or... it. And, and, and the, the answer is no. It's such yeah. a small group of people that will pay for better quality. The overwhelming majority of the kids walking on the street with the white earbuds, they do not care i don't i grew up with am radio then fm radio and then you know crappy you know albums and cassettes sometimes and to me it was always about the song and it didn't really matter if it was scratching and or if there was static on the radio or if it was mono versus stereo um i just wonder if i'm in the minority if people really care about you know kind of that ultra high quality audio experience uh, the, 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 the average music listener doesn't care. And that's your market. That's who you're yeah. going for. And, and, you know, if in order to get them to consume a high-quality stream, they have to buy a new device, they have to buy better headphones, they have to subscribe to a different service, it's not going to happen. Right. And if, to your if, point with the white headbuds, if they're working out in a gym, there's noise, Right. Doesn't there's matter. usually music going. Yeah. If you're in your car listening to music, there's all this noise. You're not going to get. You really almost have to have either the surround sound home situation or some really nice headphones in a quiet space. And frankly, that experience that doesn't happen that, that often. That, that happens so rarely that it it's not a concern. I mean, listen, if if Apple all of a sudden turned their streaming service into title quality streams. For no additional money, people would be like, "Great, that's awesome! Thank you." That's a nice it. to have. It's a nice to have, but no one's going to go out and buy. Hey, Neil Young, a brand new player, yeah. and download and pay for new files in order to do it. It's not going to happen. Uh, you know, I I grew up through the era of. You know, all right, I used to have a separate MP3 player. I had a separate phone. 
I had a separate cell phone, and I had a separate contact manager. For you know, it was like a bat belt, you yeah. know, in the early <laughs> mid '90s. All these devices. The yeah, fact that now everything is now that everything's on one device. No, I'm not going back to carrying a separate. No, audio and you're not going to replace your collection. We did that with the CD, and that was awesome for the industry well, for we, a we, moment in time. We did that with cassettes, eight yeah. tracks, vinyl, CDs, and MP3s. Yeah. You know, some some of us have replaced music collections five times. It ain't going to happen again. MP3 is it. I'm good or bad. I'm not saying it's it's the best solution. I'm just saying the reality is that's where it's it's landed. Yeah. That's what people are willing to accept. That's what they're happy with. Um, sorry, record labels. Sorry, artists. You're not selling us your catalog again. Yeah, and I think part of that is that we don't need to buy another catalog. We'll just subscribe. And those, we might get a different service, yep. you know, eventually. Maybe I'll be on Apple Music or Spotify or, you know, Slack or whatever. And then maybe five years from now, there may be some other service that meets my needs more. And I may switch service, but I'm not going to replace my collection again. No, ca- re- replacing catalogs is done. That was that was the, um, the gold rush for record labels. It sure was. They loved new formats and you could see that post cd there was the attempt at high def cds and there was let's do um dat tapes and let's do all all these they were sacd trying to get a new format in there why surround one reason only people because if it connects you're going to repurchase everything they didn't care necessarily that it was a better quality format it's can we recreate the gold rush of the CD release? That's right. Yeah. My God, the money that was generated in CD sales of people Shh. buying their catalogs. That's what Oh, dear Lord. <laughs> All right. Someone's let's, at the let's, door. Let's, my dogs are going nuts. Let's, let's wrap it up. Jay, show, Mike. We'll, we'll chat next week. Take care, right. everyone. Bye. Bye.